Welcome to No Hope, the podcast. Brilliant schlock. Hello, hello. Hi. It's time for No Hope, the podcast. The podcast. Once again. Are featuring, you st- featuring you. <laughs> oh, what's my name? Scott Schneider. Scott Schneider yeah. and Tim Allmiller. Do you think we still have any listeners? Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I do. I hope that we're really taking advantage of people's, uh, I don't know, boredom or perhaps, um, helplessness or hopelessness. I mean, it's the best time to launch a podcast is when people are trapped, trapped indoors. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, like the, the, the residents of the Branch Davidian compound Ooh. in Mount Carmel, Texas. Or Mount, wait, it was Mount? called Mount Carmel. Yeah, I know. Really? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it huh. was called Mount Carmel, just outside of Waco, Texas. Have you, did you watch that by any chance? It just no. dropped on Netflix, like, I don't know, a week ago or something. No, 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 no. Is it, it's, is it worth a watch? It is worth a watch. I will tell you, it's the perfect time to watch it. And, and if you have any sort of like mistrust of the government, check and 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 sort of feel like these could be the end times, definite then check. It's, it really inspires you to sort of build up that cachet of weapons and just wait <laughs> for, uh, wait for you know, wait for the attack. It is a horrifying chapter in American history, oh, and yeah. I did not know. As many details, I did not realize how horrible it was. I, I mean, I knew like, it was horrible. I remember but. it like vaguely, but like um, it was just yeah, not like in detail. So I'll definitely check that out. I mean, how does one stockpile guns in New York though? I feel like it's a lot harder to get firearms here. That's true. I do think you would you would kind of you probably have to go to Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and then bring them in. Yeah. Um, hopefully, because I think in terms of yeah, in terms of permits and and the process you have to go through to get them, I think stockpiling would be much more difficult. You're right. It's not like we can just right. like you know, like in other states, just go to Walmart, just get her done, just go to Walmart, get some guns. No, no definitely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So well, let's talk about some musicals. <laughs> Let's do talk about some music. Well, let's let's talk about musicals, but let's do. I, I there was a couple of other things that I wanted oh. to do. Rewind. 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 Because when when you said what is you said something about a Venn diagram yeah. with Stephen King and Midwesterners and gays, I had a moment where I didn't know what a Venn diagram was. I mean, of course oh. I did. I just didn't realize that's what it was called. Okay. So if you're like me, a Venn diagram. It's a diagram that shows all possible logical relations between a finite collection of different sets. It's one of those with multiple overlapping intersecting circles. And this was in reference to being a Stephen King fan in the Midwest and being gay, which I thought was a fascinating uh concept. I, I'm just curious if anyone besides the two of us experienced that. Do, well, do you, and on this exact same subject, I was on a Zoom with um, my friends John and Anne yesterday, and John was like, oh, I thought that was really funny about the Stephen King thing, but for me, I feel like you should have substituted Stephen King with Christopher Pike. Do you know who Christopher Pike is? I have absolutely no idea who Christopher Pike is. Oh my God, well, I burst out laughing because I completely forgot that there was ever such a thing as Christopher Pike, but he was like this... Um, is like was this uh, young adult 
uh, sort of like mystery writer, uh, but it was very YA and they were like super huge in like the mid 80s. Um, like Christopher his first Pike? Pike, his first book was Slumber Party, and then there were like all of these different series. Um, like there was j- different um, Chain Letter, Chain Letter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chain but letter. they were re- surprisingly no. adult themes and like really dishy, and we were laughing like, "Oh my god, I can't believe our parents like let us read them." But we were all very certain that they had no idea like how horrific the actual content was but um uh, yeah they were really course. really they were they were big and then we started talking about how like oh well you know similarly i would like like contraband like find like stumble across like books in our house that probably weren't meant for me to read such as like the vc andrews series <laughs> like, oh god like did flowers you ever read the, the flowers in the attic series I did not. My mother and my sister both read those books and they talked about them constantly. But I, for some reason, I wasn't interested in it and I don't know oh, why. Well, you should rewind on that because they are bananas. And actually, like I wanted to at one point, I wanted to like musicalize uh, Flowers in the Attic. I mean, it would be so campy like it would be it would definitely be like a fringe festival type musical. But <laughs> I I wonder if that's ever been done. We should look. We should check on that because that yeah. seems like ripe for yeah. doing. Like and also, whole... it's it's late. It's been so long that you could probably get away with that. You know, probably what I mean? there'd have to be a song called like "Incest Is Best" and like a song about like you know the powdered donuts being poison and all. I mean, have you seen the? Uh, I think it was it a made for TV movie. I'm pretty sure it was a made for TV movie. You can yes. stream it, and I revisited it like. <laughs> a year or two ago and it's as cracked out as i remember it being it's like super campy (laughs) oh can we just talk about flowers in the attic today i mean if we could if i had read it oh but since some homework yeah i will definitely do that but I, i i do have one other thing which is um i was talking about the sort of lack of off-Broadway productions. Mm. and But I was, I think, you know, what I was talking about specifically in relationship to Little Shop of Horrors, that it seems very unlikely that a show like Little Shop of Horrors would appear on the off-Broadway scene today and live there for that long. Like the natural yeah. progression would be whether they, whether it should be or not, they would bring it to Broadway because that's just what is done these days. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to compare, appear completely stupid because obviously... Um, there's that amazing, what is it? Institution, I guess, new world stages, which is obviously about to say like Avenue Q, but again, Avenue Q and Jersey boys both were on Broadway. And then when they could no longer survive in that house, then they moved to new world stages. So Mm -hmm. that is an interesting switch. I think that's happened that happened like in the, you know, late nineties and into the, into the 21st century that, um, that would be the more natural journey for a musical as opposed to just like living somewhere in an off Broadway house. That's true. There was also, uh, uh, well, was it Off-Broadway or Off-Off-Broadway? The Fantastics, of course, which finally closed but ran for something like 45 years. Yes, 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 yes. That is the, the uh, what do you, the winner. The, the benchmark. The record. The, benchmark, the record. <laughs> the record. The record holder. Yeah. Um, and, and Blue Man Group is second only to the Fantastics. Oh, is, I didn't know yeah, that. I yeah. just 
that tracks though because what year did blue man open 91 wow. so blue man has been around for 27 years well i mean yes and fingers crossed it'll come back yeah very yeah. impressive um okay i have a question for you okay uh to get us into the musical Realm. genre is did you have you know in in the episode with busy where she talked about bat boy and she said she sort of that made her realize that you could write a musical about anything you wanted mm-hmm. what is there a musical like that for you that sort of clued me in that i could write about anything yeah like was there some sort of musical that made you like have that moment of like oh it doesn't have to be hello dolly it doesn't have to be um you know the the, the great I american mean, musical you was not changing like the answer but sweeney todd okay I mean, well amidst my like self-education on musical theater i was like this musical is about some really fucked up things but it's also like traditional musical theater like it's like still written like you know like a well-crafted show, but it's about some really weird shit. And I was like, right. Oh yeah. I would say like, that's, that would be the hallmark for me. That, that was the real eye opener. Okay. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. It doesn't matter whether I like the answer or not. I just, yeah. that I, I, um, I think, um, okay. I have another question, which is what was the first, t- do you remember? And it doesn't have to be obviously definitive, but what was the first song you wrote? Like a, you remember it being like a song with or without lyrics. Like what are the details when you sat down and composed something? Um, It was a little more organic than that. Like I'm sure I vaguely remember like sitting down with like score paper and like writing melodies and then sort of bringing them to my piano teacher and being like, Hey, on a lark, I wrote this thing. Um, Want to listen to it? But um, songs, I would say I, it wasn't traditional songs. Like in high school show choir, we had a, um, I had a class which was like musical theater scenes. Um, and my friend and I, who had a very dark sense of humor, um, she and I would, like, basically the, it was like the very flimsy excuse for a class. Like you spent like, I would say 80% of the time alone in a practice room, ostensibly like putting together your next like performance to be like critiqued by the class and the teacher. But then, um, yeah, so there was like a small performance element and then most of it was sort of like quote unquote self-study, but all it would mean is we would be in practice rooms, basically like doing whatever the hell we wanted. I mean, if, if like, we had beer and pot, we probably would have consumed it. Like that was how flimsy the class was. But yeah, my friend Kylie and I, we would basically just like make up really, really offensive, dirty songs, like where I would just be like playing chords and then she'd be like singing stuff like Wait, did like, you did you have cassettes of these? Did you yes, ever play these we for had me? Cassettes of these and they sort of made their way around the like Indianapolis community theater scene. And I would like and I would like, like somebody I wouldn't know would be like, come up to me and start singing the song, Peter Gozinia. Uh, we like wrote a whole song about a guy named Peter Gozinia. Oh <laughs> like, my God. I can God. actually still remember many of the songs and melodies to this day. Uh, so yeah, we. I feel like that was definitely some foreshadowing. And people were like super, and they were completely nonsensical. I had like 
no song structure whatsoever, but were like, if I may say, pretty amusing, amusing to the extent that they like caught on. And I was like, oh, I was like, people think weird, dark, funny stuff is actually funny. So I don't know. That was, you know, formative in a very, very weird, organic way. Okay. Yeah, I remember you talking about them. I think you might have even played some of them for me. Like, I probably did. In yeah. like 2000 or whenever that yeah, was. There was a whole song about um, self-gratification too. Um, I, I started oh, yeah. writing like... I'm, I wrote poetry and short stories and stuff in like sixth and seventh grade, but I mm-hmm. think it was Little Shop of Horrors that um, the, the kind of it's an answer to both of those questions that mm. made me see musicals differently. And also my friend Bethany, who is a, an incredibly talented um, musician and, and piano player, uh, she composed a lot of instrumental stuff uh, at that time. And we decided we were going to write a musical together, which re- which featured a refrigerator repairman <laughs> as the main character who was basically Seymour and a not too bright, not too confident girl who was basically Audrey. And we completed one song, which I do believe was called something like What is Love and was, of course, more or less suddenly Seymour. And that is, that's, I think, the first song that I ever really remember. Certainly the first musical song that I remember writing, but. Oh my God, that's so funny. Like, it's so funny how, like, early work like that is just, like, a facsimile of stuff that you like. Yeah. I mean, like, when I would take, like, when I would do, like, creative writing classes and stuff in junior high, like, I would just sort of, like, you know. I would just sort of like parallel stuff that I thought was funny. Um, it, but it wasn't, it was definitely not uh, innovative or original, <laughs> I would say. But that is how you start. Yeah. Is yeah. you start by copying people, you yeah. know? And, and yeah. I remember it like trying to write scary stories because I was reading mm-hmm. Stephen King, but I just wasn't very good at it. Yeah. It takes a long time, I think, before, you know, people actually actually like get some sort of voice yeah yeah i mean obviously longer for some than others but but i i definitely i agree with that i mean yeah at least that's Um, been my experience okay i have one more question before we we jump in which is i didn't ask you about writer's block Hmm. when we were talking about busy do you get it and what do you do like what what is your experience of having writer's block if it does indeed happen to you yeah i didn't i think i didn't pipe into that part of the conversation because my answer was essentially the same as yours even though it's a different like medium music um that i always have a like you know a handful of stuff to work on and if something isn't just like gelling it's like okay well i'll just shift to working on something else and okay that sort of like clears out the cobwebs if you will um you know and there's some stuff that seems like it never works and if that's the case it never works but i mean i feel like there's lyrics of yours that you've given me that i've tried like nine different ways to set to music and i'm like okay that 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 isn't happening for some reason yeah but yeah but um but yeah yeah and and like a lot of times too in like a case like that if something isn't working it's like i don't really like tend to just like flog it to death it's like okay i'll just try something completely different and sometimes now we'll just set out you and i will set out to just do that i'll be like i'm feeling iffy okay let me just do like two or three different takes musically of the same lyric 
and we'll see we'll see what sort of like gels i mean i think that's something that has happened the longer we've worked together more easily though right i mean in mm-hmm. the beginning it was very difficult for either of us to go back and really rewrite something i think rewriting is it's one of the most it is the most difficult thing about writing for me still um and when it flows, when something flows, like we were, we were talking about when Busy was talking about writing um, Miss Teen Tucky, Tucky, and it just kind of like, boom, it was there. When that happens, it's so satisfying. But how often would you say that happens to you? Because for me, I would say maybe 30% of the time. Yeah, you know? if even. Yeah, but I feel like, yeah, roughly that's that percentage. Well, there we go. I, I enjoyed those questions. Uh, so let's dive in. It's your turn to start. And I do believe that you are going to start with something you love. Yes, I have prepared today something that I love. Um, you're smiling. Are you smiling? I am you're nervous. I am kind of nervous and I'm kind of ready. And I'm, and I'm, I'm just like, I hope that I know it. Okay. You know it. I, okay, I know good, that you good, know good, good. it. Okay, good. The music that I'm going to talk about today that I love is Sunday in the Park with George. Oh my God. Okay. Hmm. Which I I feel like I half know how you feel about the show, but like not fully. So here we go. Sunday in the Park with George is a musical with music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim. Oh, <laughs> and book yep. by James Lapine. It was inspired by the French pointillist painter Georges Seurat. Uh, his 1884 painting, A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. Uh, the plot revolves around George, a fictionalized version of Surratt who immerses himself deeply in painting his masterpiece, and his great-grandson, also named George, a conflicted and cynical contemporary artist. Um, the Broadway production opened in 1984. The musical won the 85 Pulitzer Prize for Drama, uh, I think I read that there were only something like nine musicals to date that have won Pulitzer's. Um, oh my God, that's so funny. Yep. Uh, two Tony Awards for design and a nomination for best musical um, and numerous other awards. Interestingly enough, yeah, that only won design awards that year that it came out. It lost the Tony that year to La Cajo Fall, which I feel like is an injustice. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe not. so my personal history with this show um as a writer and student if you will of musical theater obviously as you know no one looms larger in my life and imagination than stephen sondheim who just celebrated his 90th and uh 90th anniversary 90th birthday Birthday. Uh, yeah i'm sure you watched some of that i did watch some of it yeah yep the ladies who lunch uh, trio oh. was actually quite lovely, even even though it featured uh, Miss McDonald. Yo, I heard you say over the phone that she was lovely, so I should have recorded that conversation. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was really fun, it and I do fun. love Christine Baranski. Yeah. Yeah, 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 love her. Yeah, she was great. Um, yeah. So interestingly enough, up until a couple of years ago, this show hasn't really held a place in my favorite Sondheim shows. It really. It took me like a long time to find my way to this particular show. Um, Wait, my, so when did you see it? So not until, and I'll talk a little bit about this, but not until the 2017, like the recent uh, limited Broadway engagement was the first time I saw it on stage. Um, 
my education with Sondheim happened, you know, around junior high school, which is generally when I developed my musical theater addiction. Um, I keep talking about this, but I, it was the local library. I rented a lot of CDs, um, or loaned out a lot of CDs from the library. I'd sort of like rush home with a stack of a new batch of CDs and I'd hold myself up in my bedroom and, you know, with the, with the printed lyric sheets from the CD booklets, this was back in the days of like physical music, you know, music mediums. Um, I miss those days. I, I miss having a CD thing to open up. Right? Or, oh, I, mean, I, I still really like collect vinyl for that reason, just cause it's nice to have like, tangible music that you adore um you know as an aside i think i'm I'm doing as well as can be expected expected so far in quarantine mostly because i spent like a lot of solo time as a child like hold up consuming art so i'm pretty you know i'm pretty good in a pinch on being by myself um not that i'm alone i have a partner i was gonna say well, you know, in concept. I'm yes, 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 yes. <laughs> You're not terrified that. of isolation. No, no. I'm like, you know, pretty much an introvert and like, you know, enjoy alone time. Although currently it's getting a little excessive. Oh my God. Um, anyway, so at first listen to the score is like, I don't know. I was probably again in like eighth grade or something. I would say that Sunday in the park with George generally just like confused me <laughs> As a show, I really only connected with the the character Dot's music, um, mostly because uh, that character was played by Bernadette Peters. Um, oh, her, that's like the love interest. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So her music and the character itself are like super clear, and they jump through that original cast recording. Um, in fact, her like very first moment in the show is complete exasperation. Um, she's standing there, maybe sitting there. I don't actually remember from the staging. She's trying to stay still and she's being painted by George. And she's like, George, why is it you always get to sit in the shade while I have to stand in the sun? Hello, George. There is someone in this dress. It's understandable. It's funny. It's really accessible. George, however, like was much more murky to me. The artist, you know, the the sort of main artist character. Was that Mandy? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was that his first uh, big thing? I mean, no, he had done. I don't think so. I mean, I don't really know, but like, I'm like almost positive he'd been like around. Okay. We can okay. Rewind on that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So for whatever reason, he came off to me just kind of like a sad sack, just toiling away at his painting, like ignoring the gorgeous and beautiful and vibrant woman that was Bernadette Peters. Um. Like, and you brought up it was Mandy Patinkin. I would say that didn't help matters for me because, like, even to this day, I honestly can't stand his voice. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me. And it's just, like, so, like, quiet and delicate and precious. And it's just, like, oh, my God. It's just, like, I, I just can't. Like, he was actually on that 90th oh my birthday God, thing. Yes. And I, it was yes. one of the few performances that I just fast-forwarded. I was like, wait, is he standing in the middle of a pasture singing a cappella? Yes. Like, I yes. was just like, I Of course can't. he was. Of course he was. <laughs> so, He's so obnoxious. But I do have to say that if you if you have not watched Homeland, okay. um, 
uh, he's he's actually quite effective on Homeland, huh. which is bizarre. I mean, I actually like, don't him. mind him as an actor, but as like a musical theater performer, yeah. he drives me. But crazy. that's how he got his start, right? He got yeah. his start in musicals. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, like, listening to the score, I just I really couldn't fathom what her character possibly saw in him. Like, I did enjoy his music. Um, his music incorporates the pointillism of the the actual source art that's being discussed here. Um, in particular, his song "Color and Light." George sings um, a lot of different staccato notes. There's different like seemingly random intervals in between. He's like boom, 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 boom. More red and a little more red. Blue, 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 even, even, good. Bum, 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 bum. So yeah, that was like my act one experience. And things did turn around for me. The end of act one is amazing. This actual song, Sunday, it's beautiful choral writing. It's this slow, steady build, and it swells to this like, just, completely satisfying climax it's like fortissimo all the actors are singing it's like full orchestra and you very much get this sense that it's this culmination that it's the painter's masterpiece and he's succeeded in in making order out of chaos But then Act and, Two and, happened, and it and it should have been the end of the musical. <laughs> well, there's a lot that's been said about that, and like Sondheim had some defensive, like uh, and effective rebuttals to that assessment. Um, but as a you know a junior high school kid, that's what I was about to say is that then Act Two happened. Like that's where the show totally pushed the like what the fuck button and lost me um so if you're not familiar with the work it suddenly fast forwards from like 1884 when that painting was was constructed to modern times and the great grandson of george he's an artist as well and he's creating some sort of like light sculpture things called like chroma looms and like just listening to the score in a total vacuum i'm like what the fuck is a chroma loom um and then in general just the shift in time and everything it seemed very jarring like we had like lost all of the momentum of act one um i was just like what happened to dot and george like we were just getting started. Um, I just kind of found it confusing and frustrating. And like, that was enough for me to sort of just like leave the show at that. Um, I didn't really explore the show any further. Um, a couple of years passed then because somehow in this podcast, every single episode I talk about high school show choir. So it was clearly, clearly a formative couple of years, but yeah, <laughs> a couple of years later we did this, like, I think it was my senior year. We did this ridiculous, mega mix of musical theater ballads um and like one of the ba like ballads in this mega mix was um the 11th hour duet from the show move on um 
And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh my God, this music is really beautiful. But that was kind of the extent of it. Also, like, I need to go back and watch the VHS of because it was like you would have you would have actually laughed. It was it was um, all these musical theater ballads, but it had blocking. So there'd be like when there'd be like a dramatic shift in the music, and we'd move on to like something from Closer Than Ever, like Maltby and Shire. Like all of a sudden, like you know, like the boys and the girls would be standing together in pairs, and then they would like put their backs to each other during like a really like sad part of the lyric, like. <laughs> really 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 schlocky um schlocky yeah. musical sh- schlocky show choir staging yeah. i mean totally. with like it ch- uh, like chest puffed out and like of course like did you, you know, have cumberbuns we, like we had um chorus. we had we had sparkly cumberbuns did you have sparkly cumberbuns or just regular ones um regular cumberbuns but i remember we had sparkly vests Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah, it's all about there had the to be hot, something sparkly. I think my junior year there was like a hot pink sequin vest situation going on. <laughs> oh my god! What were you called again? What the name of the show choir? Yeah. Oh, the ambassadors. Yeah. Right, and we were the Redskin Singers. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That we sounds were, kind yeah. of offensive. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, okay. So from my early experiences with the show, in hindsight, what's pretty clear to me is this is not a show for like a junior high school kid with zero experience in life and like less than zero zero experience in love. Excuse me. Fortunately. Fortunately, what happened after high school show choir was basically a shitload of years in New York, um, and most of which have been spent toiling in the trenches with you, like trying our best at making art. Um, And I would say that has made the difference in my experience of the show. Um, So yeah, many years happened. Uh, A couple years back, as you know, I work in the Lincoln Center campus. one day around 2017, I just finished eating lunch at the Juilliard cafeteria. Um, do you, and do you know that footbridge that like hangs over 65th Street? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, it connects yeah. Juilliard to like the main Lincoln Center campus. Yeah. Um, so I was with a colleague and we were like leaving lunch. And at the end of that footbridge, there's that glass enclosed area with a Lincoln Center theater. There's just like really basic seating, just like a handful of of uh, tables and chairs. Anyway, I see this dude sitting alone and eating a sandwich, just like chomping away, just like chomp, chomp, chomp. He looks up and I'm walking and suddenly I like freeze and start frantically tapping my colleague. And she's like, what? And I'm like, oh my fucking God, that is Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> like, so meanwhile, he can totally see this entire situation unfolding. That you're having that yeah, you're having a breakdown. There's no one else around. And he kind of sees me shift from like quizzical, hey, that guy looks familiar to like full on fangirl meltdown. <laughs> he was like totally bemused. Um I was mortified. <laughs> but you have to understand, like I I seriously do not have celebrity crushes, but have had like the most enormous celebrity crush on Jake Gyllenhaal since he he basically first started out. I feel like maybe I even watched the Donnie Darko with you for the first time. Oh, I think through? we did watch Donnie yeah. Darko together. Yeah, but yeah. I but that was it had been out for a few years. I feel like there was something else that 
he was in and then we went back and watched huh. that because that was kind of his first thing <gasps> oh do you remember that movie he did with um with with well, uh rachel from friends yes i was gonna say those were the two things i remember i thought we I definitely mean, I thought watched I that Donnie one together Darko first but um we definitely watched it, the, so that was the movie the good girl from 2002 yes, which is yes, a black yes, yes, comedy yes, yes, drama yes, yes. with jennifer aniston and it's hilarious and weird and dark and like between uh, those two so oh, beautiful in that movie like, oh my god so between those two films it turned me into like a super fan i was like oh my god who is this actor he's like super attractive but also like artsy fartsy and kind of nerdy but also like seems sweet and intelligent so that all led to my uh, demise. I mean, I practically like fell to my fucking knees on the on the footbridge of Lincoln Center. I um, had two sightings of him myself, ooh. and I think one of them was when he did that play um, uh, for Manhattan Theater Club. I think it was called okay. like Seawall, a Life, or something like that. I can't. Oh yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, that yes. was the first time I had seen him on okay. stage and he had a beard and I remember walking um it was down by the 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 blue man rehearsal space and he was walking on you know canal or broadway and it took me a second after I had passed him yeah. and then I had that little like you know that little like, oh my tingle tingle in the taint the you're like ooh oh my god that <laughs> was fl- fucking Jake Gyllenhaal you flooded the basement a I, bit. uh <laughs> yeah 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 and then there was another time that I saw him on the fucking subway huh. like on and, and it was a crowded car and he was just like in the corner, like reading a magazine or something. And I was both times I was just like, I didn't freak out kind of the way that you did because it was the, the subway car was crowded and I didn't realize that I had passed him on the street uh, until I had already passed him. But I had that moment like, you know, after the fact. Yeah, I had an, it was pretty much an embarrassing, an embarrassing meltdown. But, uh, you know, to bring this full circle, did you know that before what I'm about to talk about, he actually did the, uh, I think I could encores production of little shop. Yes. We talked about that. I brought that up. Oh, well, yeah. you know what? My mind, you is have no memory. Yeah. It's just turning to mush here in quarantine. What can I say? So wait, so that was 2017. And is yeah, that so he did the same that year? First, but, um, he did the, he did do the little shop thing first, but yeah. So all roads lead to what I'm about to say, which is he starred in a production of Sunday in the park with George with Annalie Ashford, who's also great. And that was at the, uh, the millennial hotel, millennial hotel. I think Hudson. that was, Sorry, the Hudson Hotel. The Hudson, the Hudson Hotel. Yeah, and yeah. that the brand new theater that, that yeah, yeah. theater just, just reopened. Like, yes, just it was like recently renovated, like right okay. before that opened. I think. Wait, is that called the Hudson Theater? I thought so. Okay, yeah. so the, I Let's don't think that the, the hotel. That. The hotel is not called the Hudson. The hotel is called the Millennial. I hmm. think. Yeah. Okay. I don't okay. Know. Sorry. Okay, yeah, so, so we we also had, saw that production. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'd, okay. I I had already been planning to like see the production before I had the like meltdown seeing him like chomping on a sandwich. But um, yeah. So I I snagged tickets with some friends. I did have a little bit of trepidation to be honest. I wasn't really sure about him as a singer. Um, I also you know had some aforementioned misgivings about the show itself. And, you know, as a whole, I do feel like the production had some flaws, but I, I ended up finding the show itself, like, deeply satisfying and mostly for personal reasons. So um, so what was different this time after, you know, a couple of decades and, and why did I really enjoy the experience? Um, 
the show is a meditation on art and love. Um, I'd like to first talk about the art aspect of the show. Um, I don't know that I've ever seen anything that so clearly expresses what it feels like to chase this dragon of art. Um, whether it's painting, music, writing, acting, whatevs, uh, it just feels like a really personal work of Sondheim's. Um, the character of George was totally fictionalized. Um, it feels like it created a huge opportunity for Sondheim and Lapine to sort of write themselves into that character. Um, there are certain songs in the musical that I feel like ought to be mandatory listening for for teenagers and young adults, considering a life in the arts. Um, the most famous in this respect is probably George's song, Finishing the Hat. The lyric describes the push and pull of living a, quote, like normal life and this curious need to create and what that means to, to those people that are in your orbit. Um, here's this lyric. I had thought she understood. They have never understood and no reason that they should. But if anybody could, finishing the hat, how you have to finish the hat. How you have to finish the hat. How you watch the rest of the world from a window. While you finish the hat. Mapping out a sky. What you feel like planning a sky. What you feel when voices that come through the window go. Um, yeah. Stephen Colbert said he read the lyrics of Finishing the Hat aloud to his mother, quote, to try to explain why I wanted to be an artist. Oh, wow. That's Isn't that cool. interesting? Isn't yeah, that cool? that's very cool. Yeah, and Joss Whedon, I also read this, Joss Whedon, the man behind pop culture juggernauts like Buffy, uh, the Vampire Slayer and the Avengers, has said of the song, that's my experience of being an artist, what I would say, but better than I could ever say it. Um. In addition to sort of talking about the solo experience of creating art, there's also rumination about the collective experience and how it's executed. Um, these themes are on full display in um, the putting it together sequence in Act Two. Oh my God, I have to I have to oh talk God. about putting it together because that's how I learned. That's <laughs> that was my first introduction to this musical, and it was it through, it of it? course, it was through, of course, Barbara who recorded oh. it for her Broadway album. And that's how <laughs> I learned. Is that the one with the Sunset Boulevard stuff? Mm, no, I don't, th I don't think she recorded the Sunset Boulevard stuff on that. No, oh. she recorded she being alive on that. She recorded okay. sending the clowns. She did one of those phantom songs. I think that, you know, the, the big, is it Christine? Is that her name? Christine love yeah. ballad or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that putting it together is like, ugh. It's so good. And then when I saw it in the show, I was so disappointed. It's so disjointed <laughs> in the show. Well, you know, because like, it's telling. Uh, yes, it isn't like a song in the show. It's a scene. Um, yeah, you which see I get. It, yeah, but you see it in like it's after the, the modern George has premiered one of his light pieces. And there's all these like, quote unquote, art people around they they often sing this refrain art, quote art isn't easy um and different characters sing it sort of parrot that phrase i would sort of feel like that that phrase art isn't easy should be like printed on a t-shirt 
um, I want to like wear that t-shirt every time we're like deeply in a slug for a show and I'm feeling like totally worn down. Like, Oh my God, this is never going to happen. Just as like, as a reminder, um, there's one lyric I love in it. Uh, risky from the start. Takes a little cocktail conversation, but without the proper preparation, having just a vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. The art of making art. Just putting it together, bit by bit. Like, of course, he's talking about the art itself, but also these larger machinations, the raising money, collaborating with other people. As you know, it like completely takes a village. I feel like this is a sentiment we definitely understand. Oh my god! Yeah, um, you need I mean, to if check I, out the Barbara version. I can't. You, I you should, heard the Barbara no, version? I've definitely right? heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's really good. It. It's really good. Um, I mean, it's I mean, so Barbara. It's so like, other than the fact but it's that it's so like Barbara. Barbara, that it's over the top. And oh, like, it's so over schlo- the top, schlocky and ridiculous. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh it's brilliant god. schlock, though. I remember when we were up at camp and you spent the, we were like making brunch and you played like early Barbara for like three straight hours. I was like, I was like, oh my God, I've had enough early 1970s, late 60s Barbara strikes. Thank you, Apple Music. You can just listen to early Barbara as long as you want. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so we we get the concept of uh, of it taking a village. Um, Wait a second. Did you talk about, did you say that it was only done in 1984 and then it wasn't done again until 2017? Is that, have there been no other revivals? Um, uh, there have been West End. Yeah. I but didn't. no other Broadway revivals? Or you didn't bother to No, there was, I di- one, I didn't bother, but do, two, I happen to remember that there was another one that I kind uh, of had wanted to see, um, like mid 2000s or something. Okay. Okay. I didn't okay. know the people in it, but. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this putting it together, I'm really like into this idea in general of like it taking a village. I mean, sure you can write a song and enjoy the act of writing said song. But then if you listen back to that song and decide, Hey, someone else might like this. I mean, chances are you're going to need other people to help you get it out of your room into someplace public. Um, So I like that that's explored here. I also love this part bit by bit, putting it together piece by piece, working on the vision night and day. All it takes is time and perseverance with a little luck along the way. The perseverance bit bit also stuck with me um, as it's so true. It's exceedingly rare that an artist sort of just knocks it out of the park on their first try. It takes like a shit ton of failures and a lot of work to get better. Um, I feel like this is something we've talked about quite a bit over the years that even though we've enjoyed basically zero, as you said earlier, uh, financial or commercial success from our work, we we do feel or hope that our work is getting better. Otherwise, you know, we, know, we know, we know, we know it's know. getting better. Otherwise, it's like, why why are we continuing to do this thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I do love l- that song. I mean, I do think that that lyrically it's brilliant. And and like I said, the only reason that it was a bummer in the show is because mm. it is such a it's so broken up. And I think it's such a great song that. That's why I would rather listen to Barbara than than listen to the soundtrack. I mean, that's but fair enough for like a standalone listening experience. But in the context of the piece, it makes sense to me. Of course, yes, um, yes, absolutely. The one last bullet on the art aspect of this show is there's a lot of commentary throughout the show about 
having art reviewed and what that means. Um, you know, just the like editorializing on art, the, that subjective experience. We we first see that in the act one song, No Life. In this scene, the character of Jules, who's a more successful artist friend of George's and his wife, Yvonne, they sing about George's work and that it has, quote, no life. Um, in act two, there's also a lot of a lot of criticism about the modern George's work and that it's confusing, that he's repeating himself, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's interesting to me that Sunday in the Park came right after Merrily We Roll Along, Merrily We Roll Along for Sondheim, which closed on Broadway after 16 performance and was pretty much oh, wow. like, savaged and burned at the stake by critics. Oh, interesting. Um, much has been written and said about Merrily, um, and I could talk for hours about Merrily itself, but the experience and perceived failure, like it it very clearly stung Sondheim and so much that he actually threatened to quit musical theater. So I feel like you can really feel some of those sentiments like bleed its way into like this work, which was like his immediately subsequent uh, musical. Um, and, and I kind of just feel like anybody who goes through the exercise of putting art out into the world can like, they can relate to that. Um, our first musical, Dose, had one and only one review. We only managed to get, I think, one reviewer in. Um, we were summarily panned. Uh, we, you and I laughed about it quite a bit at the time. Um, and while I feel like the review was generally pretty accurate in its it, assessment. It, it, yeah, it was pretty accurate, yeah. <laughs> it, did, it did sting a bit, given that we were just like, setting out and embarking on this dream um you know it's hard to take it on the chin and then like still believe in yourself enough to keep going uh although i will say there was like one quote from the review which we enjoyed it was something like it's like an andy warhol movie with music um which was meant to be an insult but we thought it was like fucking hilarious and like used the quote in our like shitty marketing for the show oh, absolutely you gotta use what you have but he also said it was pretty much a mess which was totally accurate <laughs> it was totally accurate but i feel like you brought up the name of that reviewer and that review for like years afterwards oh so, yeah martin so denton I... newyorktheater.com <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so you and sondheim two peas at a pod Tim. oh god <laughs> yeah Oh, I wish. So here I want to shift and talk about the other major theme in this show, which is, of course, love. Um, Sondheim said of this show, The plot of Sunday is simple. Boy loves girl. Boy loves art. Boy loses girl. Boy gets both girl and art a hundred years later. Um, in Act One, you're totally invested in, at least I was, invested in Dot and George. But you can suss out like pretty quickly that they're two puzzle pieces that like just don't fit together. They, they love each other, but their needs don't align. And it's just like, you just know it's never going to work. Um, this sentiment is most clearly spelled out. I think in the song, we do not belong together. Take this lyric sense. Yeah, <laughs> right on the nose. Um, but take this lyric, which I love. No, you are complete George. You are your own. We do not belong together. You are complete, George. You all alone. I am unfinished. I am diminished. With or without you, we do not belong together, and we should have belonged together. 
it's heartbreaking, but I find, I do find some comfort in this idea. Um, I'd say this was sort of the same thesis of the one and only lyric I've ever written in our, in our history, which is a song called We Will. I wrote it shortly after the demise of our flop relationship, uh, when it seems I was feeling a lot like Dot, uh, I, which I didn't make that connection until just now when I was researching the show and like sort of remembering like what about this show that I liked. Um, needless to say, like my lyric wasn't Sondheim level, but I tried. Um, we hurt each other, didn't we? The sun will set, the night will come, the night will fade. The sun will rise again, the people will die, and new ones will be born, new ones will be born. I'll also point out that I was not alone in writing lyrics about the demise of our relationship. I think you sent me like stacks Oh, I mean, most of that songbook is songs about our relationship in one way or another, you know. Which was like a little awkward to set to music, uh, reading a lyric that was like clearly <laughs> like an indictment of you. Me, yeah. You meaning me. <laughs> it was, it was, you know, it was a means of communication. It's, it, it is very, very funny in retrospect oh that God. that is how we got through it. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know. It was, it was, it was a mining of material. Yeah. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is the development process of this musical, which I was like, when I was researching, I found super fascinating and I hope you do too. <laughs> First, like the way they are like, it's always interesting. Like, how did they arrive at this idea for a musical? Like we talked a little bit about like wondering about like how for Jesus Christ Superstar, how they came up with that. But this seems like particularly un unconventional to me. Um, in June of 82, Sondheim began a tentative collaboration with James Lapine, who he at the time was a young off-Broadway playwright. Um, in search of a subject, they began rifling through photographs and paintings, uh, one of which was indeed uh, George Surratt's A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. Uh, the, 1884 painting looked like a stage set, Lapine observed, um, but was missing the main character. Who, asked Sondheim, the artist, said Lapine. And so it sort of sprung from there, and they decided to fill in the blanks themselves. As I mentioned, it was, um, you know, they totally fictionalized the character of George. Right, right. Um, and yeah, it, I it remember was, after we saw the the show coming home and reading, because I like, didn't, oh, yeah. none of but, that happened. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. Yeah, also the writing itself, like the, I'm sorry, the writing process itself was pretty unconventional. Um, Bernadette Peters apparently agreed to play Dot on the basis of one song and 30 pages of the first act. Um when rehearsals began for the off-Broadway workshop in the summer of 83 at Playwrights Horizons, no no music had been written for the second act. Uh, so Bernadette said, this is a show that Steve and James were writing as we were doing it. Every day we'd wait to see if a song would appear. I remember how exciting it was when Finishing the Hat came in. Um, so by this point, Sunday had already begun performances and the, right, and the creators were making nightly curtain speeches wow. and acknowledging the play's unfinished nature. Um, so it turns out this was like ideal, actually, for Sondheim. He said of his process, 
I really don't want to write the score until the show is cast and in rehearsal. Then I wouldn't make any mistakes. Silly as it sounds, it's true, because by then you know the qualities of the people that you're writing for. I found, I find this like totally fascinating. It's both terrifying, but also makes sense. Um, I know like some of our musicals have been, I would say, in varying stages of like, quote unquote, complete uh, when we have like a deadline, whether it's like a theater festival, development workshop, etc. Generally, I don't know how you feel about this. I generally do think it's true that it's more ideal to write with someone specific in mind. Um, like, I think it's, we often have a tendency to cast people we've already worked with before like exploring an idea or character. We can kind of go through that mental Rolodex and be like, oh my God, like so-and-so would be perfect for this. She'd really knock it out of the park. And I don't know. Yeah. Even, even if it's just a point of reference, it's, it's, you're mm-hmm. right. It's it, even if it ends up not being the reality, if you think, if you have someone totally, it is definitely helpful while you're working on it. Absolutely. It just helps inform to sketch out the character and write the, write the material. Um, yeah. I mean, I could do a deep dive in the music. I'm not going to like, curiously enough, like, yeah, I didn't expect to talk about this show it's weird. Like going through the uh, list of musicals that I love, I keep thinking I'm going to talk about one thing. And then, you know, it turns out upon deeper inspection, I'm just like, I like that musical and don't really have anything interesting to say about it. But I feel like there's just like a lot of meat on the bones on the show. Like it's just so interesting to me as like a, as a creator. And I, I'm curious to like, I know you're not a Sondheim fan, but I remember you being a little like, meh, I think after seeing that 2017 production and being surprised that none of these themes resonated with you, but I could be putting words in your mouth. Like what, what are you, what is your experience of this? Um, I think for me, it's like one of those things that was, it's, it's much better on paper. It, it, like, I understand it. I get it. I totally like appreciate it very much. And I think the first act is, is pretty fucking brilliant mm-hmm. and and really satisfying but as an entire piece i did not find the entire piece that satisfying and i feel like that's kind of my experience of sondheim a, a lot because i think when i look at the craftsmanship and what he's doing and how deliberate things are like i'm it's it's all obviously very impressive like i'm not i i don't have anything um, I don't think that he's not brilliant, hmm. but I just don't it 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 yeah, it just doesn't um as a whole. And I feel like the same I felt the same way about Follies when I saw that. Um it's interesting because I've never seen what was it? You just said Merrily We Roll Along, right? Merrily, it was right yeah. before this. Yeah, I've never yeah. seen that show, but um I just already know that that's what I'm going to think about that show. Uh, so that's huh. the part that's like, I don't know, it, but yes, I, it's th- thematically and lyrically. And I mean, I, I actually have, um, when I got home and I have a book of Stephen Sondheim's lyrics, I think there are two volumes and I have one of the volumes and I looked through and read quite a bit of it. And it's, it, it there's something really, yeah, something like really nourishing about it. But as an experience in a theater, I like I said, I wish that it had ended after the first act. I would have been blown away probably then. I, and I was very um, impressed with Jake Gyllenhaal and, and I thought it was a beautiful production. But then it all just I don't understand why what happened happened. But you don't really get the it. So it ends. It does end in a pretty 
hopeful manner still like you need the second act i wish i could like pull up whatever sondheim's quote and rebuttal was to people who make that like oft often made criticism that act two doesn't need to exist but um but like you need that 11th hour moment um i mean not sung by a high school show choir but uh that move on moment where He's sort of visited by, you know, Dot, like the modern day George, you know, ghost of the past and uh, sort of encouraging him to move on. You get this like full circle sort of like closure for that character or characters. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the show would be empty without the second act personally, but um that's just my take. And, and I went into that production thinking, feeling the same way as you like, like this should have been a one act. Well, it would be a very different show, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the show that he intended to write. I, re- I, I get that. I respect that, you know, but that was just my experience and I've only seen it once. Yeah. What do you think about coming into like engaging actors and without having an entire second act written like and apparently even like the first act like this show changed drastically at some point like each character i read that each character in the painting like had a song like it apparently it just went through so many iterations well i think that's the luxury of being stephen sondheim or being in that you know, in on on that level in that world, I think mm. that's one of the challenges when uh, of being a tiny little company that, like we say, begrudgingly self produces because we don't have that time, we don't have that luxury, we don't have the money to pay those actors. Yeah, uh, workshopping would be the most amazing thing. I mean, yeah, absolutely, but that just doesn't exist in, and it probably exists only to very very few people today because everything is so expensive, so to, expensive. to mount you know yeah. i mean I gonna it's going to be interesting to see what 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 happens when when life returns and, yeah. and how how all of these things will continue yeah and it was inter- like um to your point like we we are wearing so many hats um you know like i would love to have a music copyist and an orchestrator and this and that so that i could you know wait to write all this music until like i've got actors in a room but it's like uh i'm like scoring the music myself and it takes in an inordinate amount of time and yeah yeah and, and i'm directing we don't have an assistant director necessarily we yeah. don't necessarily have an executive producer when we're doing these things we're doing yeah like we're doing all of that so you do divide your focus and what you try to do is get everything to a place that you feel it is as complete as you can possibly make it before you get into the rehearsal room so yeah. What you're talking about, like I said, it's such a luxury to say, okay, we have 85%, we're 85% there. So we're going to finish this up when we get in there with those people. And like, we just don't have that amount of time or, or that, that luxury. Including like burn We don't have the luxury of having Bernadette Peter signing on after one, one song and 30 pages of material. <laughs> right. Exactly. Who was like, I believe, yeah, like already like a star at that point, but. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But I don't um, actually know how she started, so I don't um, know what her first what her first thing was. I wish I could answer the question. What else? What else do you have to say about Sunday in the park um, with George? That's sort of it. Other you know, other than being surprised, that's what I'm talking about today, because it 
you know, like I said at the top of this, prior to the prior to seeing that production, it was not it was definitely not in my top three favorite Sondheim musicals. Um, but for for all of these reasons, it resonated with me. Um, and I'm happy that I finally found my way to it. And I need a T-shirt that say that says art isn't easy. I'm sure you can find one of those. I mean, I'm sure that one exists. I just need yeah. to go to like Etsy and there's probably yeah. like 25 out of work musical theater writers that have already had the same idea. <laughs> I bet I, I can't believe that they weren't selling them in the lobby at the Hudson theater. I mean, maybe they were, I didn't really check out the, I didn't check out the merch table. Yeah, they might have. I'd like to get one with art isn't easy. And then another one with like Jake Gyllenhaal shirtless. I don't think that you could have gotten that at the Hudson Theater, though. <laughs> well, maybe missed opportunities. <laughs> they could have, they could have seen a serious uptick in uh, in their in their merch revenue. So, moving so, on, moving move on. Look at that segue. Oh, stop worrying where you're going. Move on. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to talk about something, a musical that I hate. This is, again, this is truly a head scratcher, even to me. And it's it was actually really interesting to dig into this because so it's kind of an exploration um, to understand what happened when I saw this musical. I had very little idea of what it was about. I knew it was edgy. I didn't really know any of the stars well. Um, The subject matter is definitely something I would normally consider myself interested in and fascinated by. Hmm. I believe my primary repulsion was due to the leading actress and the director who I generally loathe. Oh, God. Um, So is it going to be Patti LuPone or Audra McDonald? Oh, it's a brand new one. Oh, yay. Because I was starting to see recurring themes, but maybe not. The musical is next to normal. (laughs) (laughs) um Uh, i have never seen this musical oh my god you haven't but i agree (laughs) you haven't seen it no which i'll once after you say your piece i'll explain why so i saw this with scott (laughs) mcclain and we had one of those what i call a passing strange moment which john and i have which, which is kind of the the definitive like you go see something with someone and you have absolutely diametrically opposed experiences and scott was in like just enamored with everything and i was so done with it like so early on um anyway i that that yeah that's what happened but when i started to look into how it was developed um, I was like, this is really fascinating. And I only knew bits and pieces of this. So it began in 1998 as a 10 minute sketch about a oh. woman undergoing electroshock therapy. Again, oh totally my kind of story. Yeah. Um, it was called Feeling Electric and was expanded <laughs> into a full length musical and then had a bunch of big Broadway names attached Sherry Renee Scott and Ooh. Norbert Leo Butts, to name a few. Oh my god, I love Sherry Maneska. It was workshopped at the Village Theater, which I believe is now La Passant Rouge, right? 
I believe the Village Theater is the, oh. the theater on um, on Bleecker that we saw Love Janice. Janice Didn't you and yeah. I see Love Janice there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think I literally ever put two and two together. Are you sure about that? I am like 99% sure. Huh, okay. So that was in 2005. So again, just like re- referencing, you know, when busy and when we were talking with busy about like the length of time something takes like, so yeah. 1998, 10 it minute sketch, 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, workshop at the Village Theater and then presented at the New York Musical Theater Festival. Also rest in peace, although mm-hmm. not as much love lost for that as the Village Theater. <laughs> um, with Amy Spanger, Annalie Ashford, who you just mentioned, was yeah, in yeah, Sunday yeah. in the Park with George, and Anthony Rapp. So a Anthony completely Rapp? different cast. Oh yes. God, random. Completely random. Then second stage workshopped uh, the production again in 2006 and 2007. So, you know, again, we're adding now we're in nine years since the first since the first draft appeared. And this is when Alice Ripley became attached as well as the director, Michael Grief. Yeah. Um, I want to say again, and this is I just it's going to be a common refrain. I really like Second Stage, and I so wish that oh, I'd I seen love, the show there. Love Second Stage. For me, it's another example of a show that if it could have lived off Broadway, I probably would have had a different experience of it. Um, but you know, it didn't. So Second Stage produced an off Broadway production in 2008. It then went to Arena Stage in DC in 2008 and 2009, and then it opened on Broadway in 2009. So we're talking about 11 years from the time mm. that the first 10-minute sketch appeared. Um, and it ran for 733 performances and 21 previews, and it closed in 2011, setting a record for the Booth Theater. Um Notable cast replacements included Marin Maisie, God rest her beautiful soul again. I think if I had seen her, yeah. I would have had a really different experience with that show. And she I, was the, that was the one time that I was tempted to see it. When she went into it, I was like, ooh, maybe I should. And I regret, I regret not seeing it with her. And then um, Kyle Dean Massey was in it. He yeah. is notable to us as he's married or engaged to Taylor Frey, who we were lucky enough to have sing a couple of our songs at an In the Works night at the Duplex. And uh, Kyle Dean Massey was in the production we saw as, uh, I believe he like plays the the deceased son or something. I mean, I honestly have such a... Wait, such like, a didn't you see the show? Yeah, <laughs> but let me tell you. Let me tell you. Okay. Like, I, I don't, don't even have... Which character? I don't even have that much more to say about this entire thing so then as far as i know there has not been a western production there was a u.s tour and quite a few international productions and mm. that is sort of the history um in terms of known songs <laughs> <laughs> like well, i, I don't literally know. i could not I, tell you i mean i don't know this show at all so. i couldn't identify a song in that show if you had a gun to my is head right now the first i song, literally the first song called alice ripley screaming and then the third song is called alice ripley screaming and then the fifth song is called alice ripley screaming what makes you think i lose my
I believe that that is pretty much, yes, that is pretty much the thing. I mean, this is just all about my gut, like, because I don't recall a lot of details about the show. I became just so incensed so early on because I remember a lot of screaming and a lot of running. And there's this incredibly intimate story about this family on this huge metal set with all of this pointless action. And I tried a couple of times to care and I just couldn't find a way in except for the dead side. Gabe, who was played by Kyle Dean Massey, just because he was, you know, gorgeous and had amazing voice, and gave me some respite from the screaming. There's a world, there's a world I know, a place we can go where the pain will go away. There's a world where the sun shines. And also Adam Chandler Barrett was in it as the the daughter's boyfriend and he was really delightful and I developed a little like show crush on him for some time. Hey, I've missed you these days. I thought you might call. It's been weeks. I've been crazed. Hey, hey. Have you been on the scene? Cause you look like a mess. Thanks, I guess. I think he was like a little stoner stoner boy mm. or something. Um, but that's really, that's all that I remember about the and show. The, the I asked John. It's just like a family fraying well, at the edges, a, right? Because, because, because the woman is bipolar and like yeah. she is literally like on the verge of losing her mind. And, um, and I asked John what he remembered about it. And he, he said basically the same thing. He was like, oh, I remember there was like a really big metal set. And that was like <laughs> the thing he remembered about this show. But, but people- this is the. But this is the shocking thing, because you just talked yeah. about um, a, a musical that won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, which I think was the seventh musical you said, right? Oh, I believe maybe because I feel like there's maybe been nine total is what I read. But. So this was the eighth musical in history what? to win no. the Pulitzer Prize. This show fucking won a Pulitzer? Yep. And there have, you're correct, there has uh-huh. only been nine. And can you oh guess what won the, the, the ninth music what was the ninth um, musical in history to win the Pulitzer Prize I'm assuming it was either Fun Home or Hamilton it was Hamilton yeah okay yes yeah. so that oh is that's my experience I mean the the thing is you know I want to say something about Alice Ripley because yeah, um, I'm sure you remember <laughs> I'm sure you remember the speech um, I yes. have a BF Hey! Yeah. On the Tony Awards, you would which be made me if you didn't mention that, which made me, um, which just I guess didn't make me dislike her more. It just sort of continued my opinion about her that whole mm-hmm. speech, which was so over the top and, and outrageous. But then I have to mention this because I saw two readings of a musical in development that was a parody of The Shining <laughs> called um, Red Rum, which yeah. was what the little boy went around Murder. talking with his finger. Yeah. yeah. Murder backwards. And she played the um, 
the Shelley Duvall role, the mother role <laughs> in the reading. And, you know, I was, I was like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this. And she was one of the most fascinating people to watch. I have, I mean, <laughs> she was, and it, I, I, I totally changed my opinion about her. I like, I just became entranced by her. I could barely watch anything else in the reading, even well, when she wasn't on stage. I saw that with you the second oh, time you the did second time. yes you had already seen because you you had already seen some incarnation of it yeah once, yeah 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 and yeah, you yeah. were telling me about it and i was like okay this sounds insane it and was. then somehow it, they did another one and yeah. so i went with you and it was hilarious i mean because it was like this super as one would expect for something called red rum the musical that's like an unauthorized parody of like a stephen king movie but book slash movie it was like super campy but then like i'm like what show is she in she was like playing it as if it was like i don't even know yeah like phantom of the opera like i don't know something with a completely different tone like she was playing it like super serious super straight like i was it was fascinating she, she was she was it, it makes me think a little bit of Catherine o'hara you know like just this this like different sort of reality that she seems to be in yeah. and um and i remember when tom invited me the first time of course i was so excited because he was in the in the reading and um and then when he invited me again i like under normal circumstances i probably would have been like okay well i've you know i've seen the reading but yeah. i was like is alice ripley doing it again and he was like yeah i'm pretty sure she's coming back and i was like okay i'll be there because oh I, and that's God. what it, yeah that's when you and i went and, yeah, and yeah. saw her and it was ugh. it was totally so worth it it's yeah. interesting that that um you know my my journey from i thought I would never want to see her on stage again to being like, oh my God, I would totally go see her in almost anything so she did at I've this point. So I've only seen her twice ever on stage. Once was the reading of Red Room, Red, Red Room, Red Room. The first was way back in the day and it was um, shortly after 9-11. I'm sure I told you this story. Shortly after 9-11, they did a benefit at at the Village Theater. So the theater where Love Janice was. And I remember I was very obsessed with the, the, the Love Janice show at the time. I think I saw it like three or four times. Um, I don't even know how or why I had a ticket to this, but it was it was a fundraiser. And so there were all sorts of like celebrities there and like, you know, local theater actors. Um, but keep in mind, it was like, a couple weeks at best after this like horrific terrorist attack, national tragedy. Um, and then, you know, and there's different actors coming on. It's like pretty serious and uplifting, you know, the, 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 it was very like endearing and hope like lifting, lifting us all in hope. Like that was definitely like the consensus feel of the evening. And then they were like, and now, uh, from sideshow, you may know her from sideshow, Alice Ripley. And she comes out and she, is wearing an American flag bikini with like oh sequins. my god yes I do remember you talking and about this what like did she sing herself on the guitar I don't remember what she sang it oh. might have been an original song but in that moment I was like, and I only knew of her from like sideshow which in my mind was a very traditional musical yeah yeah, yeah musical yeah, yeah. I, I just assumed she was like you know any other musical theater actress and I'm like my jaw like it takes a lot to shock me but my, my jaw was on the ground like 
who is this woman? Like, did she did she not get the memo, or did is she like? I was definitely like, oh, th- there's something going on here. <laughs> like, or she did understand what the tone should be and just didn't care and was like trying to keep it light. But I was definitely like, huh? And so like then I didn't know of her at all until Next to Normal came out, and I was kind of like she may not be acting in this show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She is a, she's marching to the beat of her own drummer. That is for sure. Which in cons, I definitely I'm here for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I I definitely think I enjoy her more than I would have enjoyed her in this show. Like I, I was like, Oh, this is probably a show that I should see. You know, like you said, it was developed at like New York musical theater festival. It wasn't like based on a movie or anything. It was like an actual original musical. Um, but then like every time I would see clips of it, like either like, uh, marketing, like advertisements or like clips on shows, you know, like it was just off putting to me every single time. It was like exactly what you said. It was like Alice Ripley, like screaming at the top of her lungs, like in front of a big metal set. And I was just like, this just doesn't look appealing in any sort of way. I but still people swear by it. Oh. Like people all the time were like, oh, oh my God, this is like the best fucking show ever. And I was like, I'm going to need to take your word for it. Like, Scott McLean and I didn't speak this. for like an hour afterward. He was so, he was mad at me in the same way that, that John was mad at me or that I was mad at John after we saw Passing Strange. Yeah. Like he, it was, we were just, we had, yeah, as you said, like just the, the, the polar, polar, polar opposite, opposite experiences. And we both felt it so deeply. We, it really like put us in a, in a bad way for huh. an hour or more probably. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, so. I feel like this is often our intention of like creating something that's polarizing. Like I have no problem if somebody comes to see something and that we have created and either really, really loves it or like absolutely hates it and has a strong reaction to it. Like, I don't know. I feel like that's then we have made some sort of statement. That's true. Um, Absolutely. When we wrote Hello, My Name is Billy, like a lot of people reacted. uh, The musical about the the gay man uh, in a 12 step program um, and it doesn't end with a happy ending. And, you know, and after the journey that exists before it, like I think that definitely pissed some people off that came to see it. Um, So, yeah, I mean. No, pull, it, it's good to have those reactions. And that is something that we work toward. You know, we have never shied away from, or we've never, we've never, it's never been our goal to make people leave feeling good about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I can confidently reaffirm that is the case. Uh, and on yeah, that note. I just would, I would rather have somebody leave pissed off than like bored. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's not, there's nothing more offensive as an audience member than being bored yeah yeah that's if i true. hate something at least it's like i had an experience you know? yeah absolutely absolutely oh. um all right well there we I go i wish i could say i've seen next to normal i do wish you had seen it it'll be interesting to see if it if it like has like more life in in it has a yeah like it'll be interesting to see like what is is it gonna have a the fact that it's never made it to the west end is also really interesting Hmm. i'm sure that they explored it especially like it's a pulitzer prize winning musical you know but um i can't believe that won a pulitzer it won it won the pulitzer it won the pulitzer i mean really i should have seen it with Marin massey r-a-p-r-i-p yeah but 
Um, all right. All right. Well, that is... Well, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Um, if you still are, then... It's a God Christmas help you. Ma- it's a Christmas fucking miracle. It really you're is. You're still listening it, at this point. It really is. It really is. All right. Um, stay safe and healthy, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> go go get an American flag sequin bikini. <laughs> Please send pictures of yourself in an American yes, flag exactly. bikini to info at nohoproductions.com. We'll, we will publish a collage. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye.